Uh, before we get started in tonight's study, I want to ask Ashley and Brian Weisner to come on up. Um, I want to pray for them. Uh, Ashley will still be with us probably for the next month. Brian is accepting a job in Texas, and he's got to be out there on, I believe, by next Sunday night. Yeah, and so um, we are sad to see them go. I was, they, they told me they were going to Texas to look at the different opportunities. And I was like, yeah, well, just let the Lord lead. You know, if he wants you there, he'll open up doors. And I was like, Lord, don't open any doors. But <laughs> anyway, oh, oh, you already, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're obviously happy to see what God's going to do with them. And maybe you can tell us about the opportunity that opened up for you there. Yeah, I can. Um, first, don't let my size and my tattoos fool you. I might start crying. Um, <clears throat> so... I don't know. Ashley and I have been together for a while, and it's both kind of been in our hearts to move to Texas. One of those things that you talk about, you know, randomly. Um, what well, came more and more into our conversations. Um, finally to the point where, you know, you start looking at houses and jobs and economy and watching it. And so that's been going on for probably about a year now. So long story short, we felt like God put into our to, in our hearts that we wanted to go check it out and possibly move there. So we prayed and prayed and cried and got scared and prayed. Um, so, and what we prayed for is, Lord, um, just make it obvious. So on this trip out here, I mean, I can go into so many details to show you how good God is um, and how when you pray, he answers. Um, but long story short, I set up one interview that I knew from the get-go uh, was probably going to be the only interview. And um, when I got there, gosh, it was, uh, I'm crying out of joy, the, the, the amazing feeling. But um, long story short, I was a man praying, Lord, show me the way. I'm a, I'm a lost electrician. Show me where you want me to take my family and, and what we're going to do. Um, so my interviewer was a devout Christian who prayed to the Lord, Lord, I own this electrical company. I really need a good journeyman electrician. Um, it's not even, I was looking for a little higher spot, but long story short, so that's what he prayed, and um, the Lord put us together. Um, I remember sitting in the chair, this seems like yesterday, because it was only a few days ago, um, and just, just knowing as he's talking, like, it's just slow motion, I'm like, this is just God's doing, like, I don't care what, he's, what you're saying, um, I already see the pieces coming together, I know I'm taking this job. Um, so, it was phenomenal. Um, I told Ashley he wanted to take us all out to lunch. He was just a good man. Um, but we looked at houses, and uh, they fell through. Obviously, the Lord didn't want us to buy that house. So I start my job August 31st. We have uh, nowhere to live. <laughs> um, so just wish us luck, and uh, hopefully the Lord keeps just uh, guiding us. So that's our story, and that's where we're at. So. And you guys uh, gave your lives to the Lord fairly recently, right? Yes. Um, Ashley and I, that's another story for itself, too. Um, I was in a whole different world, and my good woman that the Lord put in my life uh, dragged me to church. And uh, this work is really emotional. Um, and, yeah, we recently, uh, we recently were baptized. Uh, at the camp out down in San Mateo. And um, it's just amazing what happens. You know, we, we gave ourselves to the Lord before our baptism. Um, we just, 
you know, need to do what he asked of us. But uh, it just really is amazing what happens when you do give your life to him. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're going to be sad to see you go, but rejoicing for what the God, has, God has done in your lives. And uh, we, we'll be excited to see on Facebook the picture of that little baby when it comes out. Oh, yeah. So uh, that'll be fun and exciting. Another boy. It will. <laughs> if you guys know Dalton, you know why I'm laughing. But it's going to be, <laughs> so, be fun. So, hey, Jeff, would you mind praying for Brian and Ashley? And this new venture in faith that they're taking. Hey, before you pray, Jeff, I'd just like to take a minute. I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh, that's right. And just uh, for me to make this journey and my transition by myself. Um, I'm not speaking on anybody else for Asher, nobody. Uh, thank you guys for letting God use you. For letting God use you um, to save me. Thank you. We're happy to be used for his glory and happy to see the fruit that he's bearing in your life. Jeff, would you pray? Thank you. Dear Lord, we come to prayer here asking for his guidance and wisdom to be loving people, Lord, for children of you, for you. They will bless anywhere they go. Just got great hearts, Lord. We just, my wife and I just got to meet them. They're a good family camp and a great people, fun to be around. And I pray that you just lead them to the right church, give them a great place to live. Yes. They, they deserve it. I pray that uh, they're in Texas, they'll be happy and they will bloom and show their light that they have in their heart and in their relationship their children, family, Lord, that they love you, and they're willing to do everything and anything and listen to you and go and do your work. I pray that you just give them their love and the encouragement that they need to move forward. Here at the CCOT, we're going to miss them. Can't wait to see how their lives develop and worship you, Lord. Pray to you, Jesus. Name I ask. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, Ashley, you know you're going to be around here still for a little bit longer, and you know that you can call any of us if you need something, and we're here for you. And uh, I, I can smoke meat. I don't know. I don't know if it's as good, but. You know, I can smoke meat, so Thank if you, you need some meat, a lot in my freezer. it's about what I can bring to the table, smoked meats. <laughs> so, anyway, God bless you, brother. You. Love you, and uh, I know God is going to do a wonderful, wonderful thing, so I'm excited to see what he does. So, well, thank you. And now we're also praying for a journeyman electrician. <laughs> so, in fact, actually... Well, they were gone in Texas. We just found out we have this electrical problem. And I said, oh, well, Brian's in Texas. We can't talk to Brian about it. So, uh, so we will miss him. All right. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, continuing on through the book of Revelation. And um, I was uh, reading a little thing from Greg Laurie. And uh, I, I loved, uh, he, he made this little list about ways that you know that you're obsessed with biblical prophecy. 
And this is, this is what he wrote. He said, you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy if barcode scanners make you worry about the mark of the beast. And uh, of course, some of you guys younger don't know that, but in old Revelation movies and in times movies, it's like always the barcode's the mark of the beast. Uh, now we're on to chips. You know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy if you never buy green bananas, right? You won't be around long enough for them to get ripe. So, <laughs> you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when you can name more signs of the times than the Ten Commandments. That's a problem. You know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when you refuse a tax refund check because it's in the amount of $666. <laughs> and you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy when you always leave the top down on your convertible in case the rapture happens. So, <laughs> anyway, I love that list. And I'm sure we all know some or have come across those who seemingly are over-obsessed with the subject of Bible prophecy. And I want to encourage you, be cautious about those who are constantly reading the news into the Bible. And I'm not saying we don't want to be aware of what's going on, but we definitely don't want to read into the Bible. We want to read the Bible and pull out of and then look and see what's happening. Um, be cautious about, about, you know, check all the sources. Things are always going to come up, and people are going to say, oh, this, here, this is going to happen. Jesus is coming back. There's blood moons in the sky. And I'm not saying that there's, there's nothing to those things, but we just want to be cautious and aware. You know, Bible prophecy is a wonderful gift. John Walvoord said this uh, about Revelation. He said, God gave us his revelation for our understanding, our obedience, our warning, and our encouragement. Did you get that? God gave us his revelation for our understanding, our obedience, our warning, and our encouragement. Bible prophecy should encourage you. Not something for you to be obsessed with, but something for you to be expectant. We want to be expectant of the Lord Jesus coming, and we want to, and I think as we study through this prophetic book of Revelation, it will be all the more reminder that Jesus is coming. It should motivate us to live godly lives. We want to be faithful in character and fulfillment of his commission. So I, I hope that as we study this, you'll be considering these things that, am I faithful with my character in Christ, and I, am I faithful in the fulfillment of his great commission, because that's really what these things should spur us on to. I've, I've known people who get so obsessed with prophecy, all they do is study prophecy, 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 and they never actually go out and share the gospel, which is the whole point. And I want to encourage you, let's be a fellowship that's an incendiary fellowship, a fellowship that is contagious, a fellowship that is so excited about the coming of the Lord that we want to go share it with others. We want to share about his great salvation. So with that said, um, I, I just want to remind you, last week we talked about this revelation. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus Christ is giving the revelation from God to Jesus through an angel to John, we see. And John is writing these things down. Now, this is John the Apostle. Somebody reminded me, I didn't really specify which John this was in the Bible. And we have a couple Johns in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we have John the Baptist. And remember, he was beheaded by Herod. And then, of course, we have John, the brother of James and, a, and disciple of Jesus, who becomes an apostle. And that John is the one who 
uh, writes this revelation down. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and of course the 4th Gospel of John. John was the one in in his um, gospel that constantly refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, and he's the one that we find putting his head on Jesus at the the Passover meal. He very much loves his Lord and has that close relationship with him. So uh, I, I read this too, that um, from the pen of this apostle, we have five books, the fourth gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He wrote the gospel that we might believe, the epistles that we might be sure, and the book of Revelation that we might be ready. So true. So we find John exiled on the island of Patmos, which we're going to read today. And I just want to remember, remind you that it was the emperor Domitian who exiled him to this island. And this island is not, it, it was a prison island. It was, uh, there were mines to be war- worked. And of course, John by this time is, is fairly old. And, and we read from some of the, one of the early church fathers that said that John actually was sent to work in these mines into this forced labor. And it might seem like a blow. It might seem like, you know, John could be contained and separated from, it, from the church but certainly he can't be separated from the Spirit of God, which is what we're going to see tonight. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll uh, get into the book of Revelation. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask for you to open up your word to us. God, speak to us. Apply it to our lives, Lord. Help us to understand it. And Holy Spirit, we ask that we would leave here different than the way we came in. Transform us. Make us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your holy name, amen. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool. Like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless the reading of his word. John is exiled on this island, and he's, notice that it says he was was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
And, and we see from John's reaction to this, he is startled by it. And I, I, I couldn't help but think of my, my oldest daughter, Elise. She's 12, and I always startle her. I, like, I always try to scare her. It's just a game we play. And I usually do a pretty good job about it. And, but it's really funny because when I scare her, like, I'll tell her, oh, go take out the trash at, at nighttime, you know. And I run around the other way and jump over the fence and scare her. And she, what Elise always does, no matter how I scare her, is she screams really loud, this high-pitched scream that breaks windows all around, and then falls down to the ground, just collapses. <laughs> that, that's her defense mechanism, just fall down. And so I think she learned that from the possum. But she always, I always startle her. We'll be driving in the truck. She's in the front seat and we're talking and then there's a moment of silence and then all of a sudden I just, I just go, ah, at her. And she's like, ah! <laughs> and it, I just am always startling her. Well, John, there's no question about it. John is there on the island of Patmos and he's startled, but not startled to scared or paralyzed, but startled by the glory of God. And we're gonna see that as he sees Christ because the Christ that he sees now is very different from the Christ of the gospel. That he, that when we see, when that he's very different from that Jesus in Galilee, that carpenter from Galilee, he sees a very different Jesus. And by the way, this is probably the most explicit uh, description of Jesus in the New Testament, right here. We don't really have much, much, def, uh, much uh, description of Jesus in, in the Gospels. The most we see is in the Transfiguration. He was clothed in white and glowing. And of course, we, we know that he had holes in his hands after the resurrection. But, but this description of Jesus is awesome. And we'll, we'll get into that. But let's talk about this for a minute. Notice he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. Let me just talk about that for one minute. The Lord's day. Today we always refer to the Lord's day as Sunday, the first day of the week, the day we come to worship. And of course nowadays with the way work schedules are and things like that, uh, church can be any day of the week or any night of the week. Um, we have church services all the time. And you know, here, on, here on, at Calvary Chapel Old Town we have three major services on Sunday in the morning and the night. But many churches have services Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. But this might not be the day of the Lord's, or the Lord's day speaking of Sunday. I mean, it could be, but this would be the first time in the New Testament Sunday would ever be referred to that day. Because all other times in the New Testament, we see that Sunday worship, or that the, the day that the church gathers together for communion or for fellowship, the Lord's table, is always the first day of the week or the day of his resurrection. Never, we never, don't see it as the Lord's day. And I'm not discounting that. It could be that. John could be the first one to actually use this reference in scripture. But it also could have another meaning. And I just want you to keep, keep you aware of this. There's a, a term in scripture and as we get further into the book of Revelation, you need to know this term. So I figured this would be a good time to bring it up. And it's an Old Testament term called the day of the Lord. And, and we do see it a couple of times in the New Testament. But the day of the Lord is a, a in, oh, there we go. It's a phrase used in the Bible to emphasize special interventions of God in human history, including the future time when he will intervene to judge the nations, discipline Israel, and establish his rule in the messianic kingdom. And there's some characteristics that come with the day of the Lord. We see that there's judgment is one of the characteristics of the day of the Lord. Maybe next slide. Uh, oh, 
You know what? I, I, let me also, I forgot to put, say this. The day of the Lord, before we go to that slide, the day of the Lord seems to be the same time period in Scripture as the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, we read about that in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's also referred to, there, there's also the time of great tribulation, which we read about in Matthew and Revelation. And then the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. You can read about that. And the day of the Lord seems to be the, the, the same time period with many of the same events. And here are those characteristics of the events that we see. There's judgment, salvation, cataclysmic wonders, divine vengeance, and final victory. Let me read from, uh, read from the book of Zephaniah. And tonight we have a few passages to read outside of the book of Revelation. But if you turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud, A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then Malachi says this, for behold, uh, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And that's Malachi 4, 1 through 3. And so the day of the Lord is an important term. So John could be saying that it's the first day of the week and I was caught up in the spirit. He could be saying that, that being caught up in the spirit, he was, he was moved forward to, there it is, the day of the Lord, this time period uh, where we're going to see Jesus wrapping up and God wrapping up his whole prophetic plan and bringing all things to an end. So it could, and then of course, I think it actually could be both. It could be the Lord's day. Sunday, when he's worshiping, thinking about the church and, and what they're doing in, in Ephesus and the, the, in Asia, and he's thinking about them, and then he's caught up in the spirit and also forwarded to see what's going to come in the day of the Lord. So, so I just want to bring that to your attention. We'll talk about day of the Lord more as we get into the great tribulation period and all those things coming. But the key thing in this passage that I want to bring to your attention tonight is Jesus is Lord. And when I say Jesus is Lord, I mean more than just he has authority. I mean he is God. He is deity. Look at what John sees when he, when he sees Jesus for the first time. He's, he's told to write. He hears a voice like a trumpet. And then in verse 12 it says, Then I turned to see that voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. Hairs of his head were white like white, uh, white wool, like snow. His eyes were aflame like fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And then skip down to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, 
the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And this image of Jesus Christ is so awesome. Notice that earlier last week, we looked at verse 8, where God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And remember last week I was telling that it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. God was saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. And now we have Jesus here saying, I am the first and the last. And I was the one who was dead and come back alive. There are so many people that will try to say that Jesus never claimed deity. You'll see it on History Channel specials or National Geographic specials. Oh, Jesus never claimed deity. You'll see the Jehovah's Witnesses claim Jesus never claimed deity. But I want you to realize that is so false. I mean, they are completely unaware of all of his claims. I mean, after all, remember back in Mark when Jesus looked at the paralytic man and said, son, your sins are forgiven? I mean, that alone is something that belongs to God. God alone has the authority to forgive sins. And here we see Jesus Christ with the power and the authority to forgive sins as a testimony to everybody knowing, to everybody around saying, hey, I'm God. And then, of course, his enemies, we know his enemies in uh, John 10 recognized that Jesus was God because they tried to stone him for it. Look at John 10, verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Even Jesus' enemies realized that he was claiming to be God. And here in the, the, the book of Revelation, we see it clearly because we see the glorified Christ appearing right here in chapter one. And don't forget last week I told you, this book is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about a revealing of him and his establishment of his kingdom. I'll never forget I, um, when um, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come by, I always try to make time and talk with them. And I had some Jehovah's Witnesses coming by my door very regularly. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, what they believe about God is that Jehovah God, the God of the Old Testament, uh, he, he's God. Jesus is not really God. Jesus is a created being. Um, he's an angel, and uh, also Michael the archangel. And, and, uh, and he has power. He's been given authority, but he is not God, not Jehovah God. And I'll often sit down with them and show them different things. And um, one of the things I learned this last time is how powerful the book of Revelation is in sharing the deity of Christ. We, we sat down and I started with Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, um, and I talked to them about salvation coming by Jesus Christ alone. We can't trust in our works. Going door to door won't bring about salvation. And then, of course, in that passage in Romans 10, it, it, Romans 10, uh, Paul is talking about um, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says, well, don't you know, in quotes back to Joel, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I kind of challenged them on, on Paul calling Jesus Lord and saying, call upon the name of the Lord for your salvation. And then I showed them how in the New Testament, Jesus is worshiped. And what the Jehovah's Witnesses will say to you, and I'm hoping that you'll pick up on these things, and the next time a Jehovah's Witness comes by your door, you'll do this. 
they'll say that, oh no, Jesus wasn't being worshipped. When Thomas fell down and said, my, uh, my God and my Lord, he was paying him obeisance. He was just recognizing him as a, having authority from God, but not being God himself. Then we went to the book of Revelation. And I showed them verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And I said, who's speaking there? And they said, oh, that's, that's Jehovah God. And then we went over to chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I said, well, who is that? And they said, I'm not sure. And I said, well, it says the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, that's the title for God, right? Jehovah God, yeah, that's, that's the title. Well, is this Jehovah God? I'm not sure. I was like, well, I, I can tell you who it is. It's Jesus Christ, because certainly Jehovah, God the Father, did not die. He wasn't dead ever. He didn't die and is alive again. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God, and we went, continued on through Revelation, and we went to chapter 4 and 5 and all the way in through the 20s, and you constantly see Jesus being worshipped as God. To God alone belongs the worship, and Jesus is worshipped. So make no mistake, this book is awesome, showing the deity of Christ, and I'll tell you right now, you cannot cut the deity of Christ out of Christianity. Make no mistake about that. I, um, when we first bought our house and we moved in, one of the first things I wanted to do was cut a huge hole in the wall into, from the living room into the dining room. And uh, we, it happened to be Christmas time when we had to move into the house and buy it. And I had like two weeks amidst a youth all-nighter and everything to, to get the house livable. Uh, it was kind of a wreck. And so um, one of my jobs was, my first thing was, okay, I'm going to tear out this wall and put a, a nice big walkway to open up the house because we always have people over at our house. And um, my dad came over. He was a city inspector. And he says, oh, no, you can't break out that wall. And I said, come on, dad, why not? Let's just do it. And he's like, no, that doesn't work that way. That wall is the load-bearing wall. That's, that is an essential wall. If you break out that wall, your, your ceiling will fall down. Oh, so what do I do? He's like, well, you've got to support the ceiling. You've got, you've got to make sure that you do this right. And so I, I remember uh, setting up, so I, I built two false walls to lift up the ceiling. And then, uh, then I was getting ready to break out my wall. But before I had actually done the false walls and put them up, I come back home from a, a Christmas breakfast thing at my family's house. And I see my father-in-law there with a hammer getting ready to strike out the studs of the old wall. I'm like, no, I've got to put those walls up and put in this giant beam so that the house doesn't fall down. I'll tell you right now, if you try to take the deity of Christ away from Christianity, the whole house collapses. You don't have Christianity. You need to know, know that. And, and this is the sure way to recognize a cult is Jesus Christ. Cults will always screw up Jesus Christ. They will always be offended by him. They're offended by the cross. They're offended by the, the grace of God. They always want to turn it into a work. They always want to say, you've got to be better. You've got to do this. You've got to give money. You've got to do all these things. Oh, no, it's not about the grace of God. They hate the cross, and they hate the idea of the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. So I want you to realize that as we go through this book of Revelation, we're going to see over and over that Jesus alone is the worthy one. Jesus alone is the one who has come um, and brings judgment with him. 
as he walks among these lampstands and in the midst of, of this, we notice John's picture of him that he's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. Isaiah talks about when he first sees the Lord, he says, I saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's showing his regalness that he's a king. He's no longer a battered, suffering servant. He's no longer one who has been put to death and beat up. He's now a king, and he comes as, as this Messiah king with the golden sash around his chest. Notice the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Remember I told you last week that as we go through Revelation, we're going to be looking into the Old Testament a lot. Daniel chapter 7 uh, you're going to recognize this, this image right here because Daniel has the same vision of the Lord and his hair was white like snow and white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This image of Jesus ready to judge. Fire in the Bible is constantly used for purification. It always represents purification, that, that purifying work that God does. And, um, and so we see his eyes full of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Now, burnished bronze refined in the furnace. There's a couple of meanings that we can see in the, throughout the Bible. The first one is that I want to draw your attention to is the bronze altar in the temple or the tabernacle. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were given instructions, explicit instructions, to build a place that could be, they could worship God at. And with these instructions came fixtures within the temple. There was, one was the altar in which they were going to burn the animal that they sacrificed for their sins. And the metal that that altar was to be made out of was bronze. So we have that image of, of sin being judged upon that altar because that's what the sacrifice always represented was the judgment for the sin. The animal took the place of the person and of course, once for all, Christ died for us, taking our place upon that cross, becoming sin for us. And of course, bronze also represents strength throughout the Bible. Constantly in the Old Testament, we'll see, you can look up bronze and do a study on it. You'll see it represents the strength and integrity of something. And Jesus here, his feet fitted. Look at that. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. Strength and judgment. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Man, I just imagine, what was that like for John seeing this for the first time? Oh, I know what it was like. Look at it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That was John's response. So startled by the glory of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the Jesus that John hung out with, that loved. Je John was very frank with Jesus. John was, John was with Jesus all the way through. John, John was there laying his head on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. Yet here he falls down as though dead in worship. I wonder, what does your response to Jesus Christ look like? Do, do you respond to Jesus and his majesty with worship, with falling down, humbling yourselves? Because I'll tell you right now, the first time I realized who Jesus was and what he did for me, that was my only response, fall down on the floor and pray. I just remember crying out to God, you're awesome. That's why we worship him, because he's taken our sin for us. He's taken the judgment and the penalty for our sin upon that cross. And honestly, if you don't, haven't yet received him, 
if you still are dead in your sins and transgressions, if you are still awaiting judgment, let me encourage you, let Jesus have that. Trust in him. He paid the price. Don't be foolish. Don't die a fool's death because of your pride. Humble yourself. Fall down at his feet. John worships the Lord Jesus Christ, falling down as though dead. I hope that you will too. I hope that you'll worship Jesus Christ because he is an awesome God worthy of our worship. Then we see that uh, Jesus is the judge here. We see him ready to judge. Ready to judge who? Well, we're first going to see him judge, uh, ready to judge the churches. So he, he gives the churches, and we'll see it starting next week, some specific information on things to change. Then we're gonna see him start to judge the world. And that's what, you know, when we get into Revelation, we see all these seals broken open and bowls and trumpets and all these things. These are the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. These are judgments of God upon an unbelieving earth. But I want you to realize that the church is right there. We see Jesus walking amidst these lampstands. And I love how the church is portrayed as seven golden lampstands, these churches that, that... Jesus is speaking to. What is a lampstand? Well, we don't have lampstands really, but I guess this would probably be the closest thing to lampstand, except it would have fire coming out of it. And of course, in the temple, we, they had a menorah. They had a lampstand with, with uh, the stem being one and then three on each side. And um, I, I, don't, I don't really know that there, it represents particularly anything. Um, I mean, it could represent the tree of life. I was talking to David, our brother back there, about uh, the lampstand and the Jewish interpretation of it. And, uh, but, so we're not really sure that it represents anything specific thing. But we do know that lampstands are there to give light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. And we also know that Jesus told us in John, in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deed works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. Or, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, Jesus is the light of the world. You are, are a light there for him. You get to reflect that light. That's an awesome privilege. And that's what the church is here. It's their lampstands amidst a dark community. Don't, don't be surprised that the community around us is dark. That's why you're here. You're here, church, to shine your light brightly, to proclaim God's goodness, to proclaim that death and his resurrection, to fulfill his great commission. That's the, the, the church is portrayed as these lampstands, and we want to make sure we actually are a lampstand. There's nothing more worthless than a flashlight without batteries. I'll tell you right now. I, I've been in places, and I, I've told you before, I was out backpacking one time, and my light went out, and I was totally in the darkness. I had to grope my way back to camp because uh, I was filtering water, and it was, it, was, it was so difficult getting back without a light. We want to be lights. We don't want to have dark spots in our lives either. Can you imagine a light with a big black spot on the lens? How, how great would that light be? Everywhere you want to point it at, there's just blackness and there's light around it. You know? It, 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 it would be such a worthless light. 
Dear Christians, recognize that you are light in this community. Don't fold, don't hide from the darkness. Light, light penetrates darkness. Light does not hide. Darkness is the absence of the light. Light penetrates into that darkness. You, should, you too should be penetrating into this world, not content with hiding, letting it shine. Now, a lot of times we Christians tend to read this, uh, Jesus' words as, let your, light, let your lamp, uh, light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to their Father. And we go, okay, so I'm just going to go be good and never say anything. Listen, how will they know, how will they believe unless someone tells them? Please, Christians, be a light. Be a light in your community. Be that lampstand that Jesus walks among and sustains. Be a light. The Harvest Crusade is coming up. It's a great chance. Um, I know that uh, Art recently, last Saturday night, had a little evangelism class and and one of the things, uh, one of my friends, Tommy, came and shared at that class. And Tommy was sharing, uh, he runs the, uh, evangel- the street evangelism for Calvary Coast Mesa. He goes out a lot with them. And uh, Tommy's a good guy. But one, I know one of the things he said last night, which I'm, I'm, or yeah, last night, which I'm glad he said, is that you may feel intimidated about sharing your faith. We all do. That's okay. But we still have to do it because Jesus called us to do it. So we all, I feel intimidated. I'm intimidated every time I get up to teach the Bible. I'm intimidated. I'm intimidated when I share my faith uh, with my neighbors, with people I come in contact with. I'm always intimidated by it. But I'm gonna be faithful and I'm gonna move in faith. All right, Lord, you told me to share, I'm gonna share. And you know what? I'll tell you, I always am blessed. Every time I share my faith, I'm always blessed by, by being obedient to the Lord. So I encourage you. And now, the, one other thing I want to point out to you about the lampstands and the stars we see here is in Revelation, many of the times that we see symbolism happen, later on it'll explain it. And look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So many time when we see symbolism happening, just keep reading and, and it'll be explained. This is what this represents. This is what that represents. Sometimes we have to go to the Old Testament and then sometimes there's symbolism where we just go, I'm not sure, I don't know. And we, we'll just say, well, we'll know eventually. God will make all these things known, so, so we'll wait on the Lord. But most of the time in the book of Revelation, you'll see the symbolism um, just explain later on. So we don't have to be intimidated by that. Last thing I want to mention about the churches. Notice that there's seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel means, is angelion in the Greek. And angelion just means messenger. And it can be a, a spiritual messenger of God being a, an angelic being. Or it can be a person bringing a message. Okay. And I, I think there could be two interpretations for this. We could say that, that there are angels that are overseeing these churches in Asia, these seven churches in Asia, which, by the way, will represent the church as a whole, and, and we'll see why when we get into those. Or it could be the elder or pastor overseeing those churches, the one who's bringing the message, the one who, who is going to receive the message from John, and they're gonna bring, he's going to bring it to the church. 
And I, I, I'm not sure which way to go on this, and I don't want to become definitive about it, but, but I do think it's important to think about this, that the, the seven stars are in his hand. The seven stars are in Jesus' hand. And I, I tend to think that this is, this is probably not necessarily an angelic being, but the elder overseer of the church. Now, again, I don't know for sure, but as soon as we get into chapter two, we'll see with each letter to the church, it says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right. And so I think it very possibly could be the, the overseer, elder of the church, pastor, the one who's giving the message so that he knows what to, what to give. The point of this whole thing is the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands, we see the seven stars uh, in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Of course, we know that the right hand represents the authority. The right hand in, in first, this first century culture, that represented power and authority. And if you're left-handed, I apologize. I, you know, you're just, sorry. <laughs> it's all about the right hand. And, which, but if, if you are left-handed, you already know this, and you already feel like you're left out in this world, and things aren't made for you, and so that's okay. That was my sister. She's, she's left-handed, and she was always odd at the table and everything like that. But um, the, Jesus holds these stars in his right hand. I take great comfort that I'm held in his right hand. He's my authority, and he holds us. He cares for us. He sustains us. He is the good shepherd. He is our pastor. I'm just, I'm just a guy up here that God has given authority to teach to. But Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our pastor. This is something cults prey on often. They'll try to say, well, you, you don't go to any other churches. Oh, no, we're your pastor. You stay here, da, da, da. And, and they, they try to pray on that, and they pray on the authority of Jesus. Listen, there's one pastor, one shepherd of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. And he holds us in his hand, the seven stars in his hand. And, and we trust in him for, for his authority. We look to him. We, we, we're not going to go outside the Bible. So I, I take great comfort in that. The last thing I want you to look at in this passage is verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw, in, oh, I'm sorry, um, sorry, verse 19, I apologize. Um, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Mark that, underline that in your Bible, that verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. I absolutely believe that this is the key verse in the book of Revelation. This is the verse, this is the verse that unlocks Revelation. The things that you have seen, what is that? That's everything prior in chapter one. Write this down, John, the things you've seen. What did he see prior? Well, he, he had this, he was caught up in the Lord's day in the spirit. He sees this image of Christ, the one who holds the, keys to death and Hades, um, the, the one who's ready for judgment, all these things he has previously already seen in chapter one. Then the things that are to take, uh, then he says, those that are, and that, that's where we're going to see the letters to the seven churches in Asia. So we're going to see that up to chapter four. Those are the things that are. He's writing letters to churches currently there and established. And then finally, from chapter four on are the things that are to take place. 
And I believe that many people make a mistake with the book of Revelation. And I told you last week that when you read commentary, commentators on the book of Revelation, they're all over the map. You often have to wade through a lot of yuck and muck to, to, to get things because they just, when it comes to the book of Revelation, they want to interpret it uh, as something past. Or uh, they want to say, oh, no, this has already happened with the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They want to look backwards at the book of Revelation. But I think that there's no question about that this book, the majority of the book from chapter 4 on is going to be future. Things yet to happen. Things that are to come. And you know what? There is a wonderful feeling of peace and hope that comes over me when I understand that. Think about it for a minute. How often are we so unsure about tomorrow? Wow, we got it twice tonight. That was pretty good. How often are we so unsure about tomorrow that it, it almost robs peace from us? People make tons of money off psychic hotlines, uh, going to, to uh, palm readers, all these things. I, I'm always amazed that in, in a post-Christian culture that these businesses can stay in business, that, that horoscopes are still printed. I, I, I'm amazed in a culture that is moving more and more towards an atheistic society that they still look to psychics and, and uh, palm readers and, and look to these different methods of trying to foretell the future. Listen, God alone knows the future. And when I read the book of Revelation, I recognize that, that Jesus Christ knows the future. Jesus Christ already knows what's gonna happen. He's laid it all out. I don't need to be worried about the future. Jesus has a good plan, and, and his plan will be awesome. Now, for those who are left here during the tribulation period, not so awesome. It's gonna be tough. But the end result is gonna be incredible. A millennial reign with Christ reigning on earth, and then finally the new heavens and the new earth where God's dwelling is with men. God will put an end to sin. And think about this. When we say he puts an end to sin, we're not talking that God robs people of their will. You still have a will. You're still you. But you no longer have that desire to sin. You no longer want to. He's finished the work in us. And we'll see that as, as we go through the book of Revelation, the world might be in turmoil. All sorts of things might be falling apart. The economy might be here. The, the, you know, whatever, there might be a war over here. But God fully knows the end from the beginning. And he knows what's gonna happen and we can trust in him. I think you can take a great amount of encouragement from that, knowing that Jesus Christ knows what's gonna happen. So I hope that as we go through this book, as we get into it next week in chapter two and, and we start to get into the churches, that you'll be a good listener to the word of God. Not to Dave Johnson, please. Don't be a good listener necessarily to Dave Johnson, but listen to the words of God because these words are here to, as I said in the beginning, to encourage you, to warn you, to, to um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get back to there. Um, to, to, to give you understanding and for your obedience. That's what these words are, are here for. So I encourage you to do that. And lastly, if you don't know the living God, judgment will come. And I want to encourage you to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And, and you, we, you might not survive, you might not live to his coming, but you will go before judgment. 
Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Recognize that there is one who stands ready to free you from your sin, ready to free you from the bondage of sin, ready to free you from judgment. His name is Jesus Christ. Call upon him. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the authority, that you are the forgiver. God, that you have paid the price for us on that cross. We thank you that you are God. Lord, we just pray you bless the rest of our worship. And anyone in here who hasn't yet called upon your name, Lord, let them do it. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. I'm ready to follow you. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. Accept our time. In your name, amen.